Well, it's often said, isn't it, uh, that a week is uh, a long time in politics. And when Gordon Brown went to bed on May the 5th, 2010, he was uh, still in charge of the country. And then the next day, the British Parliament, the British people rather, went to the polls. And what was the result? The result was a hung parliament. And for five days, there uh, were there was lots of highly charged, highly caffeinated discussions between the main parties. And on May 12th, uh, David Cameron and Nick Clegg, they held a really awkward press conference, didn't they, in the, the Downing Street garden uh, to mark the start of the coalition government. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history, isn't it? Um, a lot can happen in 168 hours. A lot can happen in a week. And this chapter, Exodus chapter 16, it, it covers a week in the life of the Israelites. It's a week that's full of drama. It's a week that they would always look back on. And it's a week that God's people learn a hard lesson all about their absolute dependence on Him. And I think this chapter, it's, it's so well known if, we, if we've read the Old Testament. It's the kind of chapter that maybe gets into children's uh, Bibles, isn't it? It's such, so familiar in many ways. And yet it's got lots to teach us tonight about God's faithfulness and our need to depend daily on Him. And to get into this chapter, to navigate it, I want to ask three questions tonight. I'm going to give you them in advance. Here they are. What's on your lips? What's in your hands and who's on your mind? What's on your lips? What's in your hands and who's on your mind? And the three questions, the three points, think of this chapter, think this is appropriate. Think of it as a sandwich and one of the really good sandwiches that has a really big filling. Okay, so the first point, the last point, they're going to be shorter. First thing is we look at verses 1 to 3. What's on your lips? What's on your lips? This is a, a chapter about food. But in the opening verses, there's something else, isn't there, on the lips, or we could say in the mouths of God's people. It's the same thing we saw last time. It's the same thing we will see next time. And it is grumbling. And grumbling seems to have been a really big problem for God's people. The whole congregation, look at verse 2, of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Uh, these were people who'd experienced a great deliverance. God had got them out of slavery. God had put a new song in their mouth. God had led them through water. God had provided them with water. And yet look what's in their mouth now in verse 3. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. And the place they say these words is, is, is called sin. It's not the, the same word as the English word we use, but it feels kind of ironic, doesn't it? The mouths of God's people are full, and they're full of moaning, whining, grumbling. In fact, there's something on their eyes as well, isn't there? They've got glasses on, rose-tinted spectacles. You can see that if you look at the second half of verse 
3, they, they kind of give the impression, don't they, that, that life back in Egypt had been a breeze. I mean, it sounds fantastic. We sat by the meat pots. And we ate bread to the full. Now, human beings, we can be, one of our traits as human beings is to be very, very nostalgic. And we're often nostalgic for the good old days, aren't we? And in one sense, there's nothing wrong with that. All of us have got memories. All of us have experiences that it's really good to look back on. And yet, because of our sin, you and I are often nostalgic for days that were no good at all. And look at the Israelites. They, they look back on days of slavery. They look back at it and they rewrite it. You give the impression that their time in Egypt was joyful when it was anything but. This is so human, isn't it? You know, sometimes people who have been through something really difficult, a difficult event, they do this, don't they? They to kind of cope with the memories. They downplay how hard it was. And you and I can do that kind of thing as Christians. When we've been Christians a while, I think it's very easy for us to look back to life before we came to faith and sometimes to look back with a sense of longing. And maybe it's because, I don't know, a Christ, becoming a Christian has changed the way that family relate to us. Maybe it's because work is harder now or has cost us our faith in Jesus, has cost us a future we thought we would have. Maybe we look back with longing because we remember times that you and I gave in to certain behavior that we now know is sinful. And sometimes, as, sometimes God's people wish they could go back. And yet someone loves when we do this. Someone loves when we get sinfully nostalgic. That person is the devil, isn't it? And tonight you and I need to resist him. We need to remember that life without God is like drinking salt water. Life without God is, is dark and hard and uh, not what the devil would uh, trick us to believe. We need to remember how good God has been to us. And the Israelites had forgotten this. They'd forgotten the Lord. They'd forgotten that he was with them. They'd forgotten that he had just provided them with water. And look at the way they speak about Moses and Aaron. You want us dead. And yet the amazing thing is that God doesn't give up on these people. Instead, he puts them to the test. That takes us to our second question. What's in your hands? What's in your hands? Verses 4 to 30. I think if we look at this big section as a whole, we could sum it up with one line from the hymn that you and I will sing at the close. All I have needed... Thy hands hath provided. Because in verses 4 to 30, something is going from God's hands to his people's hands. God doesn't want them to work for it. God wants them to receive it, to, to trust him. 
And to gauge their faith, what God does is he puts his people to the test. This is something God does so often, doesn't he, in Scripture, in the lives of believers. Um, James talks about this thing, doesn't he, about, about God testing his people. He says God doesn't tempt us, but he does test us. Sometimes he sends trials to test us. And sometimes the testing is dramatic when God tests Abraham. That's dramatic, isn't it? But sometimes it's simpler. As God teaches us to pray, as I think God was teaching his people here to pray, give us today our daily bread. Now, the instructions that God gives, they're kind of repeated throughout the the chapter, aren't they? You maybe noticed that as I read it. But the instructions are so clear. And the imagery is really vivid. We sometimes say, don't we, it's raining cats and dogs. Well, look at verse 4. I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And God is going to provide for his people for six days. God is going to provide double on the sixth day, meat at night, bread in the morning, quail and manna. And God is going to do this for a reason, to see if they will walk in his law or not. Now, notice in passing the one they're grumbling at, they bring their complaint to Moses and Aaron, don't they? And yet God sees that. They've been grumbling against him. That's really clear in verse 7. And this idea is repeated in verse 8. And then in verse 9, if you read verse 8, the, the word grumbling, it's just repeated, isn't it? Grumbling, grumble, grumbling, grumbling. Then verse 9, God wants his people to face up to it. He says, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Then in verse 10, God's glory appears in the cloud. And what does God want to talk to his people about? He wants to talk to them about their grumbling. In other words, God takes this. I think God takes this more seriously than we take it, doesn't he? One of you texted me after the service last Sunday, and you mentioned a book by Jerry Bridges, Respectable Sins. I think grumbling is a respectable sin, isn't it, in the the church family? It's very easy for us to think of it as a, a kind of character flaw rather than a sin, and maybe tonight, maybe God is talking to you about your grumbling. Maybe it's developed slowly. Maybe it's like a crack in the ceiling and it's growing. Maybe God is asking you to give up grumbling in 2024. Now, just remember what we said last time. Grumbling is not the same as groaning. Uh, Paul tells us in Romans 8 that uh, a spirit-filled believer will often groan. It's not the same as a believer calling out sin. Uh, God's no to grumbling doesn't mean we, we say yes to becoming a kind of doormat. We never push back. We never challenge something a Christian leader says. Grumbling is not the same as wrestling with God or begging God to change a really difficult situation. 
But grumbling against God is really serious. Uh, the French have got a saying, I don't know if you've heard this, the French is saying, the appetite grows with eating. And if I lived in France, I think my appetite would be, well, I would be, yeah, I would eat more than I'm eating right now. Appetite grows with eating. The more you eat, the more you need. And the more you grumble, the more you need to grumble. That's true, isn't it? And grumbling is like gossip. It's really tasty. And I think the more we do it, the easier it gets, the more we love it. Grumbling spreads. Grumbling drains the life out of marriages and friendships and churches. Grumbling isolates people. See, nobody ever says, do they? No one, no one wants to be around a grumbler. Nobody ever says, you know, that, that guy over there, his best trait is that he grumbles. Nobody ever says, his grumbling is so, it's so refreshing. And we have a saying, don't we? How are you doing? Mustn't grumble. Well, we mustn't. See, in verses 13 to 16, we see God's provision. In the evening, quail came up. It covered the camp. And then in the morning, the Israelites, they wake up. They see something on the ground. And at first, it's, it's like dew, isn't it? But then it's replaced by something else. And it's kind of thin. It's, it's, it's frost-like. And I think there's three things, quick things we can say about this provision. It's miraculous provision, isn't it? They haven't worked for it. God's just given it to them. It's generous provision. They, they gather as much as, as they need. It's reliable provision. So six out of seven days, it's going to be there. But what's really interesting about this provision, about this manna, is how the New Testament interprets this. So come with me to Second uh, Corinthians chapter 8. Second Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, this is interesting. Paul takes verse 18 of Exodus chapter 16. He takes verse 18. And uh, he connects it to something we might not have expected. He connects it to our giving. If you know anything about the church in Corinth, they had lots of gifts, didn't they? They were, uh, I don't know what you call them, a very successful church in many ways. And yet they were slow to give. And if you read uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, uh, Paul's speaking to them about giving it seems like they'd started to give to a particular need, but Paul wants them to follow through. Look at chapter 8 and look at verse 15. He picks up verse 18 from Exodus 16 and he quotes it. He says, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. It's quite surprising, isn't it? He, he brings that verse into a discussion about giving. Paul wants the church in Corinth to give 
out of their abundance. He wants them to, to supply the needs of others. And they're an affluent church. They're a wealthy church. He says maybe one day they'll be on the receiving end. Maybe one day they'll be the ones in need. But he wants there to be fairness for God's people. I think there's three things that preachers hate to talk about, isn't it? Bible reading, evangelism, giving. But giving is really important. And I think you and I will only give if we recognize, like those in Exodus 16, that all we have has been given to us by God. We'll only give money away if we recognize it all came from him in the first place. And it's a great test of our trust, isn't it? You know, sometimes people say, they'll say, you know, this year I really want to grow in my trust of God. Well, if we want to do that, what, what's one thing we could do? One thing we could do is give more money away. See, maybe you know these uh, verses from Proverbs. These are great verses to put in your wallet. They remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Do that, Lord, lest I be fool and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. See, in Exodus 16, God is testing his people. God is seeing where their hearts really are. And yet, God is not just providing them for them. God is being so compassionate to them, isn't he? God's not just giving his people food. No, God gives his people rest the seventh day. God gives them a day they wouldn't have to gather food. God gives them a day just to enjoy what he has given to them. See, God is teaching them. God is showing them this is the kind of God I'm like. I am a God you can trust. I am a God who provides for you. I am a God who wants to give you rest. And the same is true for us this evening. God has been generous to us. God wants us to pause. He wants us to, to give thanks, to take time to recognize his goodness. And God has given you and I one day a week to do that. On Sunday, what do we do? We gather together to give thanks to him. And yet many of God's people fail to do this. Many of God's people fail to stop. See, so look at verse 19. Look at the, the command that they ignore. Moses tells God's people not to leave any of the bread till morning. See, they, they, they just, they didn't believe that he'd provide and so the bread, it turns to worms, doesn't it? You see a similar thing in verse 27. Instead of resting, well, they go out, don't they? They look for food. 
and yet they find none. And look at God's response. How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my laws? It's a great principle, isn't it? Lots of people, maybe people who work with, I don't know, people who have uh, alcohol addictions or, or drug issues or things. What's the principle? One day at a time. One day at a time. One day. It's the same in the Christian life, walking with Jesus. God provides. God is compassionate. God calls us to follow him one day at a time. Take up your cross daily. And so often in Scripture, what does God do? He says, don't be anxious for tomorrow. Follow me today. Trust me today. The future may be really uncertain. 2024 may be stretching out ahead of us with so much uncertainty. What does God want you and I to do today? He wants us to trust him today. He wants us to follow him one day at a time. So let's finish the sandwich. What's on your lips? What's in your hands? You've been given so much. You've been given provision. Well, here's the third question as we look at verses 31 to 36. Who's on your mind? Who's on your mind? Where does this passage, where does it ultimately point you? Who does it ultimately point you to? I said at the beginning that this is this passage, this chapter, it's, it's kind of like a week to remember, isn't it? And I think that's really clear in the closing verses, verses 31 to 36. There's lots of talk, isn't there, about remembering, uh, kind of commemorating what's happened. And uh, God's people, they fill, the, they fill a jar with an omer of, of this manna. It's something they're to see. It's something they're to keep for all generations, something they're to bring out. Somehow it's, it's not going to go stale. It's something that would later on be stored inside the Ark of the Covenant. And it's here. It's going to be kept. It's going to be something that reminds them of God's faithfulness to them in the wilderness. See, one of the things about us as human beings, we've touched on this a bit already, but human beings were made to remember. And there is a nostalgia that can be unhealthy, and yet there's also a kind of remembering as God's people that is really, really important, isn't it? Lots of families, they've got objects, haven't they? I don't know, maybe it's uh, war medals, or maybe it's an old wedding photograph or something like that. Objects that they take out from time to time. Objects that tie you and I to the past. They tie us to a story. Uh, they say to us, you belong to this particular family. And it's true in God's family too. God's people are going to eat this bread for 40 years. Uh, they're going to wander, they're going to meander their way to the promised land, and God is going to keep on providing for them. That's the kind of God he is. And I think, I find it hard not to think about the Lord's Supper here. You and I are on a journey through life, aren't we? God has provided a meal for us. 
And you and I, we remember the Lord's death until he comes, don't we? And yet, as we look at this chapter, as we think about bread from heaven, I think we've got to think about the Lord Jesus, haven't we? Same Jesus who was tempted to turn stones into bread in the wilderness. What did he say? Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And what did Jesus say about this story? He said, this story, this incident, this bread from heaven, it ultimately points to me. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. See, Jesus is the one that this passage ultimately points to, isn't it? Jesus is the one who is the true bread of heaven, the bread from heaven. Nothing else, no one else can satisfy you and I. I think you and I, we often overcomplicate the Christian life, don't we? We love strategies. We love discipleship programs. How does real growth in the Christian life come? What does a mature Christian actually look like? Well, they look Christ-like, don't they? They look like someone who increasingly is seeing their dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do you and I become Christ-like? Well, I think at least two things so often. It's so often, isn't it, suffering and reflecting, remembering. See, Paul says, Philippians 3, he says, he wants to know Christ. And then what does he do? He immediately speaks about sharing in his sufferings. That's Philippians chapter 3. What's Philippians chapter 2? Well, it's Paul talking about the suffering of Jesus at length. And if you read Philippians, you see, don't you, you see a church that has grumbling in it, that has squabbling in it. And what does Paul do? He, he holds up to them the humility of Jesus. He says to people who are grumbling, he talks to them, people who are grumbling, he talks to them about the one who humbled himself. He speaks to them about how God became a slave and how his body was broken, how his blood was poured out for them. And so tonight, friends, let's thank God for all he provides. Let's thank him for the physical things God gives us. Let's thank him for the spiritual. And let's remember, let's close with this question. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us 
all things. Well, let's pray together.